Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and Little League practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end with Schnebly and Toff. Thus begins episode number 61 by our count of The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toth. Thanks for joining us. My thought is it's not just our count, but anybody who uh, has been following along, it would be their count too. Assuming they were counting correctly. And perhaps that's a big assumption on my part. So, okay, we're just going to assume that everybody has been counting along. We're going to assume. There will be a brief quiz at the end of the first semester. So make sure you listen all the way through. Our email address is lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. And I was just saying to JG that... Somewhere in the past two weeks, I think, we got to the point where we are now receiving so many emails that we're not going to be able to read them all on the air, as it were. But we do want you to know that we read absolutely every single one that comes in, and it is so rewarding to see what this podcast has grown into, not just for JG and Kat and Nan and me, but for you guys, the subscribers and how much this this podcast is is an important part of your week and how uh, humbling that is to know that so many people have taken ownership of it and think of it as their podcast, which it really is. And that's the hardest thing for me is trying to come up with a way to express how deeply grateful I am. The fact that we're having an issue now responding to all of the emails is a good problem to have. It's a beautiful problem. But we want to make sure that you, as uh, one of our uh, swimmers, if you will, know that when you do write us, we do read it. We circulate it among the staff, if you want to call us that, <laughs> and appreciate every jot and every tittle. Some of them even get printed out and hung up in the uh, in the cafeteria. There's a bulletin board in the cafeteria yeah. next to the uh, human rights violations placard. And the uh, material safety data sign-up sheets. And also some uh, cartoons about cats that have been <laughs> photocopied. And we mean felines, not, not cat. So I'm looking to shoehorn an extra email in because we're getting so many of them. And I wanted to read this one from a listener named Amy. She says, hi, guys, I was on my way to work this morning and I hit play on the shallow end thinking it was going to be the regular mix of crazy stories that always has me laughing and shaking my head on my commute to work. Lo and behold, Lindsay starts telling a story about meeting Tony Bennett in an art store. And I yelled out loud to no one, by the way, because I was alone in my car. Oh my God, I just got a picture in to frame that he did. You see, I work at a very small business that custom frames artwork of all kinds. I've been working for this company for 25 years. Just yesterday, a couple walked in to frame a print that they were very proud to own. 
didn't occur to me to look at the signature since I've seen, and I'm not exaggerating here, tens of thousands of pieces of artwork over that time. This picture, and she even attaches an image, is a snow scene with a red barn and a horse-drawn sleigh standing outside. Not particularly fantastic, but definitely better than anything I could ever do myself. It wasn't until the couple said something that I noticed that the print was signed by, wait for it, Tony Bennett himself. (laughs) I, of course, asked if it was that Tony Bennett, and they proudly said, yup. There are so many reasons I love my job, and I'm honored that people allow me to take their cherished family mementos, beautiful works of art, and goofy pictures of them and their grandkids, and a thousand other things, and make them more beautiful than they already are. But when someone brings in an item that's a piece of history that I wasn't even aware existed, it makes me smile. When you said Mr. Bennett was in an art store... It would never have occurred to me that he was an artist like that, except having literally held a piece of his physical art just yesterday. We lost an amazing artist when Mr. Bennett left us, and in more ways than one, it will just help everyone remember him. Thanks for reading my story. Just know that even though most of my customers are, let's just say, living on the higher end of the financial scale than most of us, (laughs) I still make sure to tell as many people as possible about both the shallow end and box of oddities. Oh, and tell Kat, this year I'm definitely going to write my weird-ass story about when the ghost touched my butt if they do a Halloween episode on Boo. For real, a ghost touched my butt, and I'm pretty sure I know who it was. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the photo. Love your show. Amy from Delaware. All right, Amy, here's the thing. Absolutely, for the Box of Oddities upcoming Halloween special, we want that story. Please send it in as soon as possible. We would actually encourage anybody who's had their butt touched by a ghost to send that in. Or any part of their body. Or any part of their body, actually, yeah. Well, today I'm going to talk about, my story actually is a personal one, in the sense that I know the people involved. Really? And it dates back to my childhood. And I just, I don't know, it started thinking, we're in Cuenca, Ecuador, as you know, and the temperature here is very fall-like most of the year. It's 70 in the daytime and as low as maybe 55 at night. Can I interrupt, JG, with just a quick question? Yeah. This is episode 61. Why did it take this long for you to realize, (laughs) oh, wait, I've got a shallow story from my own life? Because I had totally forgotten about it. What brought it back to me was the smell of burning leaves. Mm. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, yeah. There's a name for that where a scent triggers a memory and I can't remember it. But I bet you we're going to get 25 emails of people who (laughs) are going to remind us of what that term is. I'm out walking the dog last night and it's like maybe 52, 53 degrees and somebody has uh, some leaves burning and maybe it was just wood smoke. I don't know, but it immediately took me back to my childhood And with autumn slowly approaching, my mind traveled to northern Maine. Autumn was a magical time of year in my hometown of Holton, which is less than a mile from the Canadian border. I can only guess. And I still remember that smell. The crisp morning air and the lightly frosted lawns I'd encounter on the way to the bus stop in the morning. It was also the beginning of deer hunting season Hmm. in the autumn In northern Maine. And northern Maine is renowned as a deer hunter's paradise. The region, of course, is vast, untamed wilderness, and healthy deer population have made it a popular destination for both local and out-of-state hunters. Doesn't it surprise you that the deer haven't picked up on this and decided to move somewhere else? I think a lot of them have escaped over the border (laughs) into, uh, Into into Canada under the 
dark of night. But the state does have a meticulous management uh, program for its deer population to ensure a sustainable hunting opportunity year after year. It's next to impossible to get a uh, what they call a doe license. You can't shoot a doe without a special license. Uh, you have to go after bucks, and that's a lot more difficult. I didn't know that. From the crisp days of autumn to the snow-laden silence of winter, the hunting season in northern Maine, it's a celebrated tradition. It's a test of skill and patience and a chance to connect with the raw beauty in nature. And it's kind of a, you know, father passes it on to son kind of thing in Maine. Sure. Multi-generational. It is. And it's true that people would come from all over the country to hunt deer near my hometown. But if you lived there, you knew where all the best places were to go. And sometimes you didn't have to go very far. A guy lived down the road from me. His name was George. Uh, He got his deer one season right there in the driveway while standing next to his lawn tractor. What? They just wandered into his driveway, and he was rural enough that uh, he just dropped the deer in the driveway. Didn't have to worry about missing and uh, hitting a neighbor across the street. (laughs) No, no. He was far enough out where that was okay. Wow. And in Maine, it's not like they just do it for sport. I mean, it feeds a family for the winter. Does it really? So when I think about this, my mind inevitably drifts to my father's hunting buddy, a guy named Walter. Walter was an interesting guy. He was hardened by life and brimming with wilderness stories. Uh, He was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He actually was a hired hand on a nearby potato farm and a uh, country music, a local country music musician. That's quite a varied skill set. And he was a really interesting guy. He was a habitual visitor to various hunting sites that were scattered across the vast expanse of the Pine Tree State. His favorite hunting haunt was a climbing stand, which was nestled in an open creek bottom near Haynesville Woods, which is a serene place that echoes with the secrets of nature and also the paranormal and supernatural. There are some really unusual, weird ghost stories and uh, strange happenings in the Haynesville Woods. Interesting. Back in the day, before the interstate was built, that was the road that took you from northern Maine where they would uh, transport potatoes to Bangor and then ship them out on cargo ships. Went right through the Haynesville Woods, and there were so many accidents. Truckers would have accidents there. There was a hit song in the mid-60s by a local guy. His name was Dick Curlis, uh, and it got picked up by Capitol Records. It became number one, and it was called Tombstone Every Mile. And it was kind of like the lyrics were something like, if they buried all the truckers lost in the woods, there'd be a tombstone every mile. Wow. It's a a remote area, still is to this day. So he's there. He's seated high on his stand. Can I make a suggestion, JG, that that you quickly explain to people who may not know exactly what a stand is? I'm sorry. Yes, a tree stand. It's a portable or sometimes a permanent. It's like a little tree house, and it puts you up 8, 12 feet in the air so the deer aren't as apt to smell you and you would put it in an area where they would come to find food like a brook or a field or an apple grove a grove of oak trees because they like acorns suddenly as he's sitting there a sound cut through the harmonious chorus of the forest he heard a buck snort at his back now that's a distinctive sharp noise and when you're a hunter 
it kind of sends this adrenaline rush through you. Instinctive caution urged him to swivel around and locate the source of the sound, but the seasoned hunter within him knew better, and he knew that any unnecessary movement could turn the hunter into the hunted, or at the very least, he would lose his chance of getting his seasonal deer. Every rustle, every snap of twig underfoot could shatter the silence and send his potential quarry bolting away. It does not take much to spook a deer. Interesting. His heart pounded in his chest as he hunkered down. His eyes strained to catch any sign of movement from the corner of his eye. He waited with anticipation. And it was almost like a clock was ticking away in his head as he watched the deer slowly come into his peripheral. In its serene progress, he approached the tree and was standing directly beneath Walter. Wow. Maybe eight feet below him. Now, the standard play, of course, would be to slowly reach for your reliable rifle, angle it toward the unsuspecting buck, and with a soft pull of the trigger, seal the fate of the morning's hunt. But... On this particular morning, a surge of spontaneity overrode Walter's rational thought. The heck? He's the kind of guy, he's a folksy, charming kind of guy who has all kinds of great stories. And he was always looking to add to that collection. And Walter's gaze, and when Walter's gaze fell on his large hunting knife that was tethered to his belt, an instrument usually reserved for the aftermath of, uh, of the kill, mm-hmm. its gleaming steel in the morning light seemed to challenge his conventional approach to hunting. No. It appeared to be whispering to him tales of bravery and raw combat. What the F? Inspiration struck him like a lightning bolt. A tale began to weave itself in his mind, a story of an extraordinary hunt, one where the rifle was replaced by the knife, and the hunt became a close-quartered dance of survival and cunning. Good grief, Walter. His body tensed as he prepared to make his audacious move. He was going to jump out of the tree with his knife and subdue the buck with his hunting knife. (laughs) I can just picture... Jumping down the eight feet, face to face with the deer, pulling out the knife and going, bet you didn't count on this, did you, Mr. Buck? (laughs) And the deer, of course, would not bolt away. Good grief. In his mind, though, he was already living the aftermath, standing victorious, his knife bloodied and raised in the air with an incredible tale of daring deer slaying on his lips. But things didn't quite go as he expected. (laughs) Poor Walter. Like a coiled spring release, he launched himself from the tree, eyes locked on the quarry below. But there was no room for error, no space for hesitation. In this slow motion event, every sense heightened. He was the embodiment of the raw, primal nature, a predator descending on its prey. Yet wilderness holds no tolerance For even the minutest misjudgment, no mercy for a miscalculated act. Survival of the fittest. The unfortunate turn of events began to unravel with the terrifying realization that his trajectory was slightly askew. (laughs) He actually landed on top of the deer. He collided with the deer. What? The knife swung in a dreadful arc and missed the deer entirely. It flung off into the bushes. And he landed primarily on the creature's upper back and neck. So now it's like a bad rodeo event. It's a terrible, horrifying, blood-soaked rodeo. Now, this, of course, startled the buck. And he responded with the only weapon he had. 
think of this. He's he's the embodiment of fear and survival. This is his instinct. It, it, he is. It's fight or flight. This now. is as primal for both these for both <laughs> these individuals, Mister Buck and Walter, as you can get. The buck threw its large antlered head back in a frantic attempt to shake off the unexpected Good predator. Grief. The forceful collision of the sharp antlers against his face was the last thing he remembered before he slipped into unconsciousness. Good grief. A trail of crimson splatters traced a path across the undergrowth, coupled with the remnants of torn clothing caught in the low-hanging tree branches, served as a mute testimony to an incredible journey. It appeared that the hunter, incapacitated and unaware, had been unwittingly part of a Roughly 40-yard voyage across the uneven forest terrain. (laughs) The buck, seemingly invigorated by a surge of survival adrenaline, had dragged the unconscious man along. His sturdy flannel jacket, caught on the buck's majestic rack, proved to be an accidental harness tethering him to the panicked animal. Good grief. It was as if the roles were reversed. The deer now had uh, a reluctant and unexpected burdensome cargo. So the event ends. The forest reclaims its peace and the deer eventually shed its burden, this hunter, and left him amongst the undergrowth. His body bore the harsh evidence of the journey, cuts, bruises, and blood seeping into the earth. He was alive, but he was lying there motionless. After the morning aged into afternoon, the forest continued its daily cycle, oblivious to the drama that had taken place earlier in the morning. Four long hours go by. Oh my God. And his wife starts to worry. Where's Walter? Where's Walter? She began to sense something was amiss. He was a uh, an experienced hunter. He always checked in when he said he was going to check in. And this was before cell phones. Sure. The man who never failed to return from a hunting trip was uncharacteristically late. So anxiety was really starting to gnaw at her. And she decided to make a venture into the wilderness to his favorite hunting spot. She knew he was going to the tree stand. As she arrived at the uh, familiar open creek bottom, she was met with a disturbing sight. Her husband was sprawled amidst the undergrowth, his clothing tattered and stained a grim scarlet. Oh, dear. She found him in this unnatural slumber, also a trail of scattered, torn fabric and dried blood, the hunting knife lying nearby. He was also lying there, this is the ultimate indignity, uh, with his pants pulled down around his knees because apparently the buck while trying to dislodge him during that 40-yard journey. Uh, Somehow his pants had become caught in the antler of the frenzied 12-point buck. And when he fell, his pants ripped and came partially off. So in addition to all of his injuries, Walter was pantsed by a deer. (laughs) Now, she must have freaked out when she first saw him bloodied and near pantsless yeah was he was he moving was he was he conscious no he still was unconscious oh he he took a, a nasty nasty fall my lord um she called for help from a man who owned a nearby potato farm and they took walter to the aroostook hospital uh, where he made a full recovery and this story has become a legend <laughs> Uh, in my in my hometown. I can only imagine. And I apologize for not remembering it until now. It is, without a doubt, a cautionary tale from my childhood, and it serves to remind us, don't bring a knife to a deer hunt. <laughs> you know, I can imagine 
why it would become a legend not only in in your hometown uh, among locals, but I'm also picturing that buck that night with with his family sitting around the fire or friends with beers saying, "Okay." All right, everybody tell your story because no one's going to top my story. So today, I'm underneath the stand, see, minding my own business when this lunatic jumps on me. The idea of deer sitting around at the end of the day discussing their near misses uh, is delightful. It's very far side, isn't it? That's exactly what I was thinking. I, I picture them sitting around a table playing cards, right. having a beer in a, in a camp with a fire. And on the back wall, there's a cheap velvet painting of people playing poker or the head of a human being there you go mounted on the wall even better yeah full taxidermy (laughs) (laughs) anyway my source information me pretty much there you go everyone loves the taste of fresh bread and most people are intrigued by cryptocurrency like bitcoin what if you could combine those two things in one product introducing crypto bread the first way to buy fresh bread using only cryptocurrency other breads are sold in stores for cash but our bread is different crypto bread is baked in secret locations around the world many of them safe all you do is go online with your bitcoin or other cryptocurrency and choose the bread you want and in just months your bread arrives on your doorstep from its secret bakery full disclosure because of the volatility of the crypto market your price won't be locked in until after you purchase your bread so you might pay $100 for a single slice but hey you also might get 100 loaves for 10 cents and that uncertainty just adds to the experience imagine a dinner party where your guests compliment the meal and you get to say I don't know where this bread came from Crypto bread. It's digital dough. Real bread. Crypto bread. By the way, credit where credit is due. The idea for that spot came from JG about three weeks ago via a text. Yeah, it just popped into my head. So if if you didn't like the commercial, it's JG's fault. Hey, I didn't write it. But if you liked it, <laughs> I will let you know that I wrote it just this morning. Yeah, yeah. I came up with the idea and then it was butchered by you and Nan. With your shoddy writing skills and Absolutely. Nan's less than professional narration, I just I just got a a text from from Nan saying crypto bread on desktop. Hope I hit the tone. Gave you two takes on the full disclosure line. Nice. Talk about things that our great grandparents never said to each other. Crypto bread on the desktop. Hope I hit the tone. <laughs> Gave you two takes on the full disclosure line. That's great. <laughs> Our email address is, as we said, lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. We got an email from, we got lots of emails, but the one I'm going to read is from Mr. Mac, who says, hello again, uh, floating freaks. I'm emailing both shows because both do play a role. So I've recently taken a waiting until Friday when I'm driving around for work to listen to nearly all new episodes of the podcasts I follow. When I hit the road, the order I listen to them is Dumb Morning Radio Show, Sunday Box of Oddities, Wednesday Box of Oddities, Shallow End, No Such Thing as a Fish, while the Dumb Radio Show and Wednesday Boo aren't relevant, the listening order kind of is, because this Friday I get one. Sunday Box episode kicks off with JG talking about synchronicities, super fun and interesting. Two. TSE episode kicks off with JG talking about contraception throughout history with a good chunk of discussion about the use of crocodile dung. Three, (laughs) 
Finally, NST, the final fact for their most recent episode was fact number four. You could tell the social status of an ancient Egyptian man by the color of his condom. A fact which understandably merited the passing mention of crocodile dung contraception. (laughs) So, not too long after listening to JG talk about synchronicities, I get to experience one about poopy prophylactics, and hence my subject line, which was fucking shitty coincidence, a rippling boo effect. (laughs) Fun times. Bonus fun synchronicity. I know that somewhat infrequently Cat and JG will mention Dan and Lindsay Cummins' STD, insert another contraception joke here, and also last year there was a week where Boo and STD both released episodes where Dan and JG talked about the same topic. But what I'm not sure if you're aware of is Lindsay's birth date. It's November 11th or 11-11. As a final small aside, unrelated to the above, with one TSE listener who got so incensed about making fun of pickleball, I feel like recent news about it kind of fits, at least as being quasi-shallow end. And he sent a New York Times story about an increase in pickleball-related injuries all across <laughs> America. I love that. Remember, y'all, prevent unnecessary injuries by preparing before any physical activity. I always, always make sure to stretch my fingers before opening my next beer. Sending hugs, <laughs> kisses, and a lifetime of countless shallow and near misses, Mr. Mack. Thank you, Mr. Mack. Lynn's hang on. There's a man outside my window playing a trumpet. Copy that. You're in the shallow end with Schnapply and Toth. A listener named Heather. JG, it's another Heather. We're swimming in Heathers. She wrote us to say, hi, Heather here. Recently just found your guy's show. I absolutely love it. I'm an over-the-road truck driver and I have lots of listening time. The day goes much faster when you're laughing. I hope this makes sense. Sorry, I use talk to text a lot while I'm driving. I absolutely love you guys. Keep it up. Heather. So Heather sent along a story idea, and I'm just uh, wanting to call, call that out and say, as we said at the top, Heather, you have no idea what emails like that mean to all of us here. Cat, JG, Nan, and I appreciate your comments. So this is a this is a weird story, buddy. This one's really Weird. It's about a woman who decided to rob a bank, but it's why she robbed it, how she got there, and that the and the person that she used to get her to the bank that makes it <laughs> so weird. This happens back in December of 2010, so that's almost 13 years ago. It's a small Minnesota town called Janesville. It's about 80 miles south of the Twin Cities. I wonder how many states in the U.S. have towns named Janesville because there's a there's a Janesville, California up north, which, by the way, is located not all that far from Susanville, California. You got Janesville, you got Susanville. Janesville sounds like a uh, Civil War battle site. The Battle of Janes. Janesville, it does. It does. So this one is, as I said, 80 miles uh, south of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And our, our uh, subject of the story is a woman named Sandra Bathke, and she was 70 years old at the time. Now, Sandra was renting an apartment in this uh, building, but she is uh, very late on her rent. And her landlord says, as landlords are wont to do, pay this now or you're going to get evicted. <laughs> so Sandra says, okay, okay, I'm on it. I'm heading to the uh, heading to the bank right now to uh, to withdraw money and and get out. But but she needs a ride to the bank because Sandra doesn't have a car. So Sandra recruits 
uh, a gentleman named Luke Weimart. He's 26 years old. And she convinces him to drive her to the bank so that she could make a withdrawal and pay the rent. So she gets out of the car holding a bag. And in that bag, there is a small hammer in a cloth bag. And she goes into the bank and she says to a teller, fill this bag with money. I've got a gun. Now, what I've left out here is that Luke, the driver, is the son of Sandra's landlord. Okay. You following there? I am. Luke didn't, he just thought he was doing her a favor. Hey, can you give me a ride to the bank? I got to take out some money. <laughs> what he doesn't realize is that she's taking it out by by robbery. So now he has unwittingly become a, a getaway driver. So Sandra comes back out and she's holding the bag and she's, she's you know, smiling and she says to Luke, okay, let's go back to the apartment complex and thinks, okay, that's cool. So they they start driving. They leave the parking lot of the bank. And what they don't realize is that because Sandra was walking so slowly, like she had just made a, you know, a withdrawal and was going back to her car to drive home, a bank vice president has time to follow her out the door and get into his car and he starts tailing them. Now he calls the police and says, so this woman just robbed our bank, my bank, and uh, and I'm following the car. Here's where we are. Here's the color of the car. Here's the description. Here's the make, the model. Here's the license plate. And they get about eight miles away from the bank. And finally, the police pull up behind the bank president, vice president, and they get in front of him and pull over the car and arrest uh, Sandra and Luke, the driver. Imagine Luke's chagrin at that moment. Yeah. I thought I was doing you a favor, and and now I'm getting busted for being a, a getaway driver. Well, Sandra had gotten $3,700 from the bank teller, and the police take the bag that she had handed over to the teller, and they examine it. And sure enough, there's $3,700 in, in crisp bills, and... They're looking for a gun, but there is no gun. It's just that small hammer in a little cloth bag that she had carried into the bank. Now, in her initial court appearance, Sandra was actually released on her own recognizance without bail, if you can believe that, because she was deemed not to be a flight risk and she didn't even have any money to post bail. So they must have looked at her and thought, all right, this woman is obviously not making good decisions. She's 70 years old. She doesn't have a dime. She can't post bail. She said in an interview with a a TV station later, quote, I never touched the money. I never even smelled the money. That teller put the money in my bag and I said thank you to her before I turned around and walked out. Sure. You, and you so know, if you rep- say thank you, then you should be allowed to keep the money. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a crime if you say thanks. Uh, she says, the, the reporter said, well, what was with the hammer? Why did you bring that in? And Sandra says, uh, I really don't know. 
The hammer was on a table in my apartment. I had been using it to hang pictures. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with it, but I just wrapped it and headed out the door. She went on to say, I'm sorry for the teller, but not for the bank or that vice president. He acted like I took his money. Excuse me? It wasn't his money. It was the bank's. He's an arrogant SOB and you can print that. I love her her spirit. Like, don't get upset at me for robbing your bank. That wasn't your money. That was the bank's money. So they actually have another hearing after this. And the bank says, okay, we want $7,800 in restitution. Now, keep in mind, she stole 30, well, they, they gave her, she stole, $3,700. So they have a hearing to say to the bank, okay, you admit she got 3700 Explain to us why you think you should get $7,800 in return. Now, Sandra wasn't required to be at that second hearing, but it didn't take long for that to get thrown out because the bank didn't even file any paperwork justifying why they should get $7,800 back. And I'm wondering if they think, oh, uh, you know what? They'll never notice. Ask for $7,800 and, and maybe we'll, you know, we'll double our, double our money. That's It turns sinister. out that Luke, the driver, it is sinister. It turns out that Luke, the unwitting getaway driver, actually had an unrelated DWI warrant out for his arrest but I guess because so much time had passed or whatever, they just the police said, you know what? Fine, just take off. We're we're gonna drop we're gonna <laughs> drop this. It was it was clear to them that that Luke had no idea he was driving this woman to rob the bank because when they got pulled over, he was like, She did what? I thought she was just withdrawing money. So Bathke spent uh thirty-five days she was sentenced, I should say, to thirty-five days in jail, but A few days later, she was released on her own recognizance. And she said to the judge, I want to stay in jail because I have no place to live. Oh, boy. Which is fascinating to me. In fact, even her court-appointed attorney, a guy named Richard Lee, said, Never in my 30 years have I had a client allowed to go free and not have a place to stay. It's like Otis on the old Andy Griffith show. God, that was one of my favorite characters. He would wander in drunk and just climb right into the... <laughs> Lock himself in, <laughs> put the keys on the hook. So a judge says, you know, I don't think, Sandra, it's very cool for you to stay at that apartment complex that you were in because it would be, as he put it, problematic with the landlord's son having been the unwitting getaway driver. So Sandra was set free. She paid $1,300 in restitution. She ended up getting probation for 15 years, but she you know, only served a few days in jail. She was, in another interview, pretty upset at having gotten 15 years of probation <laughs> for robbing a bank at age 70, but... Uh, you know, I, I guess there has to be some kind of some kind of comeuppance for deciding to rob a bank and implying you have a gun. Sandra Bathke, bank robber, 70 year old bank robber. Got this from the Pioneer Press, the Mankato Free Press, ABC News and CBS News. Kids, 
don't rob banks to pay the rent. Yeah, and if you go to the bank to make a withdrawal, leave your home improvement tools at the house. Yeah, yeah, no no hammers, no hammers, no drills, no nails. Nothing. As JG no. says, all your tools should stay at home where they belong. My dad used to say when we were growing up, no home improvement job is truly done until your tools are put away. Oh, I love that. I've never observed that, but I love that. <laughs> And I hear him to this day, the rare times I actually complete some kind of home improvement project. I think, ah, you're not done yet until <laughs> those pool tools are hanging up on the shelf or in a box. I'll be putting together like a cabinet from Ikea and I will have my Allen wrench and my screwdriver and I'll right. be sitting cross-legged on the floor and I'll set my Allen wrench down and then go and screw something in with a screwdriver, and then I won't be able to find my Allen wrench. I have to actually stand up, and I always put it someplace where I can't see it or find it immediately. Hmm. I think uh, the tools are moving on their own. Oh, interesting. Interesting. But only when we're not looking. Kind of like Toy Story, but for tools. It's exactly it. Tool Story. I was just going to say, I wonder if Tool Story would be as appealing as Toy Story. Maybe if you named the hammer Buzz and the screwdriver Woody. <laughs> I don't know. Now watch. I'm probably going to get sued by Pixar. You wouldn't be alone there, my friend. It's a long and illustrious crowd. Believe you me. <laughs> As we said, lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com is our email. This wraps up episode 61. We look forward to seeing you next week for episode 62. And uh, in the in sometime in the coming weeks, uh, we have a very very exciting announcement to make about a uh, the possibility well not possibility about the timeline of a uh, of a third podcast so this is a this is a third podcast under the umbrella of the box of oddities and uh, we've had a few meetings on zoom about this and we 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 wonder if it's actually going to be more popular than box and shallow end combined, which would just be so ironic and at the same time so delicious. Uh, I love both of those ideas. I do indeed, yeah. and it is. It's 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 a fun a fun podcast and a, and a fun a fun idea and beautifully executed. If I do say so myself, and I can say it because I'm not in it. That makes it easier for me to, to say he that. He just gets the executive producer approval. That's right. Yes, That's this pleases my ears. Send me the next one. We'll, we'll keep you updated on that, and uh, we do appreciate you listening. Tell your friends. Help us continue to grow the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Until then, remember to make good choices. Your life might depend on it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toff. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast, give these boys a five-star rating, and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. Okay, gotta go. <laughs>